Ross Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter, at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 80, we read selections from the collected works of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was born April 13, 1743, in the rural Piedmont region of the Commonwealth of Virginia. When Jefferson was 14, his father died, leaving him to assume the role of patriarch for the family. Jefferson studied at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, and became a lawyer. He was elected to the House of Burgesses in 1769. On New Year's Day, 1772, Jefferson was married to Martha Skelton, a young widow and the daughter of a prominent Virginia landholder. Through this alliance, Jefferson himself would later become one of the most prominent landowners and slave owners in all of Virginia. Several successes in the House of Burgesses led to Jefferson's nomination to the Second Continental Congress at Philadelphia, where he was the second youngest delegate in attendance. He was selected to draft the Declaration of Independence, the document that formally severed all prior ties with Britain. At the time, Jefferson's authorship was anonymous, but he later gained widespread honor and recognition for his role. He served two years as governor of Virginia and then retired to Monticello in 1781 to care for his ailing wife, who died the following year, leaving two healthy daughters behind. In 1784, he became minister to France, where he also served during the Constitutional Convention period. In the new America, United States of America, President George Washington chose Thomas Jefferson as the first Secretary of State. Jefferson served in this capacity for the duration of Washington's first term, but found himself increasingly at odds with the Secretary of Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Out of their ideological differences, the first two political parties emerged, with the Federalists supporting a strong national government behind Hamilton and the Democratic Republicans supporting strong states' rights behind Jefferson. Following another two-year retirement at Monticello, Jefferson ran for president of the United States against the Federalist candidate John Adams. He suffered a narrow defeat and assumed the role of vice president, as was the custom at the time. In the election of 1800, Jefferson again faced Adams, but this time emerged victorious. Most prominent among Jefferson's decisions as president was the Louisiana Purchase, which doubled the size of the United States. Jefferson served two terms as president of the United States and retired to Monticello. His final legacy involved the founding of the University of Virginia. He died on July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years after his Declaration of Independence was immortalized by the approval of Congress. So it seems appropriate that we start with the Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson. He said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with inherent and inalienable rights. Now this is a little bit different than the Declaration of Independence that we're used to, because this is these are his words that he wrote down first, I believe. Mm-hmm. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, does that sound a lot like John Locke, a book that we read in our very first season? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds, it's, uh, yeah, back episode four, we, we talked about Locke and you know, his his ideas were sort of, uh, in the founders' minds a lot as they were writing uh, all of our founding documents. And yeah, here they are. The idea of you know, men coming out of tribal, barbarous civilizations to form governments to protect their rights. And you can see right, yeah, you can see right here that this is, it's a it's a direct distillation of Lockean philosophy. And it, it shows really the heavy influence of, of Locke on 
the American founding. And I think this is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's always fascinating to see where they pulled ideas from. I mean, they obviously pulled ideas from 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 the Greeks, ancient Greeks, as well as Montesquieu and, and John Locke is very clear here. But this also jumped out at me because a conversation we've had on a, on a prior p- podcast about whether or not conservatives would have been for the revolution in America or not. You know, this uh, longstanding criticism of sort of on the left is that most conservatives would have been with the crown as opposed to with uh, with the fight for independence. And some of this just jumps out at me as like, well, I'm not so sure about that, actually, mm-hmm. because he says whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, that is to secure rights, government is instituted among men uh, to secure these rights. That's the lock stuff. And he says whenever the, any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. This is a this is a different type of revolution than we would have seen in the in the French Revolution. It's different than than we would have seen in the Bolshevik Revolution. Right? These guys, what they had in mind here, at least um, Thomas Jefferson, is we have these certain inalienable rights, and we leave the state of nature as Locke sort of uh, configured. We leave the humans leave the state of nature in order to secure their rights, to secure their property, to secure their lives. And that's why we do it. And we share those, uh, we create uh, governmental powers in order to secure those rights. And if, But if government is not securing those rights, then it no longer has the consent of the governed. And so therefore, it's in a position to be abolished or to be overthrown. And uh, it, it opens the way for revolution. So in many ways, I mean, I think that is a, that's prob- more or less what a conservative revolution would look like, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it, 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 seems it like is. It. Yeah, he's not asking for government to fix everything you just it's a it's a leave me alone kind of revolution it's a absolutely recognize my rights it is it is also kind of distinct even it does sort of summarize as he said in some of his later papers uh, it's the the opinions of the american people at the time that's what he was trying to get at it's also we, we we hear a lot that the american rebels were looking to secure the rights of englishmen the rights that they felt with their birthright that had been denied them. But the Declaration doesn't talk about the rights of Englishmen. It talks about the rights of, of all mankind. And I mean, these are universal principles. This this is real Enlightenment stuff. The early liberalism is like the uh, Von Mises book we read last season talked about how liberalism was sort of the first philosophy that applied to everybody equally. You know, it wasn't about, oh, this is my right as a lord or my right as a peasant. It's Everybody has these rights, right. and the king and the parliament taking them away from us, and it's our duty to get them back. That's it. Even says it's our right and our duty, and I I thought that was stirring. You know, I mean, we this is old hat the Declaration. Where I mean, people have read we read it in school, but to read it again is it's important. Um, it and it, it kind of reminds us about why this whole American project got started. Yeah, it jumped out at me. That I was I had also thought like, geez. How long has it been since I've read this? I should. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should re- return to it more often. But so he has the he has the higher ideals that we've just read, and, and a little bit more, and then and then in just a second we'll go through a few of his more specific, I guess you'd call them crimes of King George. But uh, at the at the kind of idealistic level, he says, 
He's talking about King George waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty. This goes to what you were saying is the kind of the, the, the violations of, of human rights. Um, life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injuries. So, so they've tried, um, at least in, uh, as far as he's concerned. And then they have, he, he enumerates several more specific, you know, of the time potential, I guess you'd call it quote unquote crimes of King George. And that is, here's a few cutting off trade with all parts of the world. So making it difficult for the American colonists to, to trade with other countries and kind of having to work through, through the British. And we've talked about this in other podcasts where there were certain goods that the British kind of operated their mercantilist, uh, economic system through the American colonists, you know, forcing them to buy the tea from, from Great Britain and so forth, rather than uh, getting it much cheaper from neighboring countries, but also imposing taxes without our consent. This is probably the most famous taxation without representation still, still tagged on the Washington DC license plate. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Depriving us of the benefits of trial by jury transporting us beyond the seas to be tried for pretended offenses. So taking them back to Britain to be tried. And at the same time, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries, he says, to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny coming to America. So he has a handful. I think there's more than that. And, and several of them maybe didn't seem all that compelling, you know, as you read through them. It's kind of like the these higher ideals really speak to us a little bit more mm-hmm. than maybe some of the more specific stuff. But it's interesting, and I hadn't—I guess I hadn't noted it at this level before—how how he kind of works on those two levels of sort of the broad kind of human natural law, and then also at sort of Lockean level as well as sort of—and you did all these things too that we don't mm-hmm. like. So. Yeah, you know, you talk about how we don't—it's how long it's been since we read it. I, I was reading a couple of years ago um, the Little House books with my daughter. And in uh, in one of them, in, uh, I think it was Farmer Boy, they go to a Fourth of July celebration in the town, and somebody in the town reads out the Declaration, and this was like the custom wow. every year. Just sort of, this is why we have this day, right? Let's. Let, I think that would be a great custom to have again. You know, yeah, it is. That's a great I, idea. I mean, I love the fireworks, but let's yeah read the document. It's not that long. Have somebody with a nice voice say it, and just sort of remind people this is why we're here. Let's. This is something that we all should be able to agree on. Talking about equal rights, natural rights. These are, these are great American principles. So he, he concludes by saying, uh, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and the general Congress assembled do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these States reject and renounce all allegiance and subjection to the kinds of great, uh, and all others who may hereafter claim through and under them. We utterly dissolve all political connection, which may heretofore have subsisted between us and the people or parliament of great Britain. We do assert and declare these colonies to be free and independent states. And for the support of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. A couple things, uh, you know, kind of speak to me of this. First of all, you can imagine King George reading this and being like, sort of pat pat on the head, like, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that. This is really cute what you guys are up to, but it's time to turn around and go the other way, you know? (laughs) And uh, meanwhile, like we're talking about a country of what, two and a half million people in, in 1776. 
not really. I mean, it's, it's, it would be a small state today. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not that much larger than Wyoming, uh, population wise and turning around to the, the greatest power in the world and saying like, we're done with you. We renounce all of our allegiance with you and we pledge our lives to fight against it. I mean, pretty darn bold and, yeah. and brave. And, and obviously Jefferson himself would be one of the first targets because if you're, they're going to go after the leadership, which, you know, obviously Jefferson's won having written the Declaration of Independence. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's gutsy for sure. So we go through the revolution, succeed, obviously, and Jefferson finds himself in government, as he said earlier. And uh, two of the next pieces we read were opinions he wrote to George Washington as as uh, our first president when, when Jefferson was in the cabinet, the first of which being the, his opinion about the National Bank. So one of the big issues in the first Congress was that um, this, the Treasury Secretary Hamilton recommended that we that Congress charter a national bank that would have a monopoly on the printing of banknotes and it would loan money and the government would own some of the stock and it was it was sort of an approximation of what the Bank of England had so successfully done for that country for a hundred years it, um, how it had a how it managed the national debt and it made business and government orderly there were a lot of a lot of things to recommend it. Hamilton made a pretty convincing case, wrote a long uh, report about it. But to Jefferson, this all sounded a lot like the opposite of the limited government he thought had been created in Philadelphia in 1787. So he writes this in response, saying, the Constitution doesn't say anything about banks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and Hamilton had a lot of, you know, a good idea or not, and I don't think he... He and, and Madison, a lot of the, the uh, uh, Southern representatives in Congress didn't think it was a great idea because they thought it would just be a way of all the money pouring into the big cities and out of the countryside. But they also they also did have these philosophical objections. And I, I think I think for Jefferson, they were true objections. Uh, it wasn't just, uh, I don't like this and let me find the constitutional reason why, as is often the case with in every age. But he says that the Constitution strictly limits the federal government and quote, to take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power, no longer susceptible of any definition. You know, Hamilton described this thing as necessary and proper to, you know, all of the taxing and spending clauses that are in the Constitution. But to Jefferson, necessary means you can't do without it. And proper means, you know, it's a legitimate action of government. This, he says, could be convenient, could be useful, but it's not necessary. And once we step down that road and ignore this document before the ink's even dry on it, you know, we're turning, we're, we're already unbalancing the field and disobeying all of the, the rules we've just set up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, on the one hand, I think you're right that the Hamilton made a very strong case for a national bank and it, it more or less proved itself out. Jefferson, all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states or to the people. And on the one hand, I cheer it. And it's like, yes. Mm-hmm. Don't forget. So I did in, in the, the biography that I said that Jefferson created the first, one of the first political parties, the Democratic Republicans, which is the current modern day Democrats, right? So he's the father of, of the Democratic Party, although there's no longer Jefferson Day dinners because, or Jefferson Jackson, <laughs> because, uh, because Jefferson has been, um, you know, canceled. But this is the, Fast forward to 2010, this sounds like the, the Tea Party 
the conservative yeah. Tea Party of 2010. It really does. And uh, of course, there's uh, I, on the one hand, I take heart knowing that Jefferson has been fighting this fight since the very beginning. But on the other hand, it's extremely disheartening <laughs> knowing that he started this fight in the very beginning and uh, and lost, you know, very early on. And he said, incorporation of a bank has not, in my opinion, been delegated to the United States Constitution. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this in other episodes, particularly our constitu- or legal law episodes or whatever, but pretty much the entire administrative state has not really been delegated by the Constitution and I think is sus- completely susceptible to these same criticisms that uh, the Jefferson is leveling against uh, the, the National Bank. And yet we just move forward. <laughs> yeah, I think he's right. I mean, I, I, it's hard to argue with his, his logic. And, and his reading of the document. I think the bank wasn't a bad idea, but it certainly wasn't in the text. And, you know, not only had the Constitution itself been very limiting on what the federal government could do, but then we just passed the Bill of Rights, which included the Ninth and Tenth Amendments that further said, hey, just, just to be clear, it's only the stuff that's in here. Everything else is delegated to the states of the people. When those amendments were being passed, a lot of people, especially Federalists, were saying, we don't need to say that. It's already in the document. But the anti-federalists, who later became the Jeffersonian Democrats, were saying, "Let's just let's just put it down again, just to make sure, because we don't really trust you." And look, they were right. I mean, yeah. we, we ignored and today that is completely movie. ignored. Yeah, yeah, nobody nobody talks about the tenth anymore. It's a joke. Cla- Clarence yeah. Thomas might bring it up now and again, and and he's right, but it gets ignored. And what I wish would have happened is that they had amended the Constitution to allow for a bank, because I think the bank was a good idea, but. We got into the habit right away of fudging things. Yeah. So what's what's the alternative? I guess the listener may ask, what's the alternative to a national bank if the if the, the constitution doesn't allow it? Well, the alternative is that each state has its own bank, and you're like, and very quickly you're like, well, that's a stupid idea too. And he he addresses it and says it may be said that a bank whose bills would have a currency all over the states would be more convenient. I mean, obviously it would, and it does. At that time, and actually for most of American, the, the first like 100 years of American history, states, and not just states, but individual banks had their own currency. So you would have a community start their own bank and create their own currency. So you'd have, you know, all different kinds of, of uh, quarters and paper money or whatever else. And, uh, you know, to our ears today, that doesn't make a lot of sense, especially in our sophisticated economy that we have now. But, you know, that was an alternative. And he says, but it does not follow from this conveniency, superior conveniency, that there exists anywhere a power to establish such a bank. The alternative, yeah, the other alternative, the alternative that is what you just described, where you amend the Constitution, and I guess we'd have to study to know whether how, how possible that was, but maybe maybe it wasn't going to be possible. So, but the same the same arguments are being made today about EPA regulations, you know, or or whatever it is, or SEC regulations. It's kind of like, yeah, every state could have their own, but it would it would it's difficult for business. You know, it it doesn't make sense because on the left, they want to just win once at the federal level and not have to win 50 times at the state level. And on the right, it's the businesses are like, I don't want to be regulated 50 different ways. I just want to be regulated one way. Mm-hmm. And so, it's kind of a collective decision to be like, let's just ignore the constitution even though it's not enumerated and this is a power of the states. We'll just kind of fudge that, and that's more or less what the what the Supreme Court has done for the last you know eighty years or whatever, starting with this case, uh, Wickard v. Filburn. It's the sort of the 
Uh, there was a guy who was growing wheat on his own land for his own consumption, and and uh, Congress came in and stepped in and said, "Well, that is that's interstate commerce because you're if if you hadn't grown your own, then you would be eating someone else's, which was in interstate commerce. I mean, it's just com- a completely incoherent mm-hmm. um, argument. And the Supreme Court says, well, there's a cumulative impact if everybody grew their own wheat for personal consumption. That would affect uh, that would affect inter- interstate commerce, which is you know obviously nonsense. And they're just trying to pull pull a, a solution out of their butts because this is where they wanted to go. But you know, he's making the the argument against. Uh, Wickard v. Filburn decision against this back in 1791 to make a thing which may be bought and sold is not to prescribe regulations for buying and selling. <laughs> if this was an exercise of power regulating in commerce, it would be void. For the power given to Congress by the Constitution does not extend to the internal regulation of the commerce of a state. That remains exclusively with the with a, its own legislature. It's only external commerce that the the commerce clause actually regulates. And, you know, fast forward 150 years and, and the Supreme Court basically ignored it. But it's the same arguments. I mean, it's the same arguments conservatives are making, have been making all along. <laughs> and it's the same counter argument that's at cross purposes, too, because we're making the argument like, well, look, the law doesn't allow for this. You know, the Constitution doesn't allow it. We're, we're bound by this. We've sworn oaths to it as legislators and, and that's it. But then the, other, the argument on the other side isn't, no, the Constitution does allow it. It's. Look, this is really good and important. And why do you hate people? Why do yeah. you why do you want us to die? <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. they're not even talking about the same things. And that it was less of that in this day, I think. But but Hamilton was more interested in this is going to make us a strong nation. This is going to you know fix a lot of the different debts that the states have. That's a mess. Different banknotes are a mess. I mean, every bank and after the bank, uh, I mean they they. Uh, Washington did end up signing the bill, but after a while, people got sick of the bank and it wasn't renewed, and we didn't have one for decades. So every bank did issue its own notes, like like Jefferson said was possible, um, and it was kind of a mess. I mean, there was no bank regulation, so you had to know: is this a good bank? You know, you get a note from out of town. You're like, well, I I never heard of this bank. I I guess it's good. Is it is this is this dollar going to be redeemable? I I have no idea. It it was a confusing situation, um, and you know the government was still making coins, and those were real because they were made of gold and silver. But everything else, like eh, it was a mess. But that doesn't take away from Jefferson's argument that the Constitution does not allow this. So it's yeah, a lot of the a lot of the Jefferson Hamilton fights are still being fought, and this this was sort of the round one of uh, hundreds that uh, are still going on. And so I think what's most troubling about that is um, I think you and I would probably agree like, yeah, we need a Federal Reserve. We need to have one currency. It doesn't make any sense to have thousands of different banks issuing their own currencies, especially today. On the other hand, it's a slippery slope, right? You start, you just ignore one piece and it's just so much easier to ignore another. And we know that on the left, as far as like jurisprudence, they've already, I mean, the slope has already ended. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, we don't. Any any bit of this is is negotiable, <laughs> right? And right. so, as conservatives, we're in the position of saying, "Oh, oh, okay, oh, well, oh, okay, okay, go do, okay, you can do that, but you know, don't don't go any further, you know." And, yeah, yeah. And it's just it's very difficult. You know? Yeah, you get to the point where there's programs that even we like now, 
And like, well, we don't want to repeal it, but uh, maybe we could retroactively amend it to make it, you know, like nobody in the Republican Party wants to repeal Social Security. But that's not in there either. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things. That, <laughs> a lot of what's right. left of the New Deal legislation that hasn't been repealed already is stuff that everyone likes. Yeah. I mean, some of it isn't. Some of it's bad. But, you know, a lot of the big programs, uh, we you know, we like them, too. They They work. But again, that's that. That's not this. That's not the right question to ask when we're talking about you know consent of the governed. Business in general has traditionally. I mean, this is changing, but certainly traditionally been part of the conservative, you know, Republican coalition. Is sort of like I, I don't want to have to file my corporate papers every year in every different state. I just want to do it at the SEC, and that's it. You know, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want California running roughshod. You know, pulling me in this crazy direction. I'd rather just have the federal government just have one, you know, common sense, you know, smart uh, way of doing it. You know, so it's not just even even though like folks on the left are like I say, if are just view all this as fungible, there's still a lot of strong voices on on the right, and not even just big corporations, even some smaller, you know, small business or whatever. I don't want to be. I don't want to. I don't want the EPA. I don't want a California EPA so operating in California, and then. And then the Kansas one in Kansas, I just want one, you know, to, to tell me what the, what the regulation is going to be for, for, uh, endangered species or whatever. Yeah. And I think that now, especially as you get corporations that do span different States and you get bigger effects, you know, things like telecommunications, which is very clearly, uh, interstate, even if the companies are one state, I think these things would have, if, if they'd insisted on going by the letter of the law back then. We would just have a lot more amendments now, but it, yeah. you know it would. I don't think it would have passed that first Congress because the bank was hard enough to get through. I mean, yeah. it didn't have yeah. two thirds. It had, it got its majorities, but it was, you know, it, it was a divisive issue. A lot of, a lot of people from the rural parts of the country did not trust banks because uh, they, all they saw was their money ending up in Philadelphia instead of in their towns and and counties. Yeah. Also, on a similar note, we also read his uh, report on foreign commerce, where he talks about trade barriers, which I found really interesting because, again, it's another contemporary debate. He says, would even a single nation begin with the United States in this system of free commerce, it would be advisable to begin it with that nation since it is one by one only that it can be extended to all. I mean, this is a long way of saying he, he, he uses different language, but in our, in our language, we would say, if, if there's a country out there willing to trade with us and have lower trade barriers, we should trade with them, of course, and we should encourage that, and we should seek them out, and we're going to go one by one, and we can maybe lower, lower some trade barriers so that we can, we can increase uh, international commerce. But on the other hand, if, if that other country wants to levy revenues, that is you know, tariffs or other trade barriers, then we don't want to just give away the store. So we should also create our own protectionist, you know, uh, trade barriers or whatever too. Mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a contemporary debate because I think, and, and I'll let you talk about this. I think, I think obviously he'd read Adam Smith and, and saw the value of free trade. But on the other hand, he was still sort of in the, in the camp, which so many, most of America is today, which is like, Hey, if China's not going to lower their trade barriers, why are we lowering ours? Mm -hmm. You know? No, my, Smith was my first thought too. I mean, it, it's and it's funny how how quickly ideas spread because Smith wrote uh, the Wealth of Nations in 1776. He Jefferson's writing this in 1793, and he's saying it like it's completely obvious 
to everybody who could read that, oh, sure, freer trade is going to you know increase human life and human happiness. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was a, an obvious point when Smith wrote it. Right. Yeah. But that's that idea spread like wildfire, and I and I still think it's mostly true. Uh, you know, getting you know he, he talks about each country doing the thing they're best at, and they trade with each other, and they both benefit by trade. Like this, yeah, that's that's modern economics, but it was it was still kind of new in 1793. And it, Jefferson was a voracious reader, so it, I'm I'm sure he he probably read all. 900 pages of the wealth of nations or however long it is it's it is a massive book if you remember our podcast on that one it's there's a lot there it it, it is interesting to, to see that that strain of philosophy being worked into jefferson's and, and his idea of of small government and limited government and, and again it, it plays into the his disputes with hamilton because hamilton wanted a high tariff to build up the domestic manufacturers. He thought that, you know, Britain had been through their mercantile system, making us the backwater and the resource supplier while all the manufacturing got done in England, all the high value work. And Hamilton looked at that and he saw, well, that wasn't really good to America, but it was good to England. So maybe we should do it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's sort of the question. And, We get to it. I mean, if we if we get to uh, Jefferson's first inaugural, it's kind of the same point too. Is Hamilton saw the stuff that England did and said, "Well, some of this is just bad, you know, taxation without representation. We don't want that." But look, some of their economic measures, they were bad because they weren't equal. Here, if we do it ourselves, we're actually we we you know having a national bank, having high tariffs, these things could help us, just like it helped England. Look how powerful they are. You know, look how wealthy they are. So. Uh, a few years later, when they had the Alien and Sedition Act, which, which were some pretty serious speech restrictions in America, the most serious we've ever had, um, when Jefferson be- Jefferson campaigned against them and when he became president, a lot of people thought, all right, well, now his party's going to use them to lock up Federalists for defaming the government. And they didn't. They actually repealed them, which was kind of a rare thing you see in government that, I mean, nowadays, you see each party talks about, oh, the imperial presidency has too much power. Too many regulations, and they get in power, and they're like, "Well, it's okay when we do it. Yeah, yeah. we're doing good ones, yeah. you know." Jefferson we have actually, the proper motives. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're we're doing it for good. They were evil. Jefferson actually kind of followed through on a lot of the stuff he believed. I mean, he the strict constructionism, some of that fell by the wayside when he got a chance to buy Louisiana, and everybody was happy. It it was a it was a very popular move, but with other stuff like that, um, he and and with the free trade thing, he didn't. Um, they did reduce tariffs, I believe, and they certainly didn't impose any new ones. He he he's writing what he really believes here, and um, there's probably some there's always self interest in politics, and and our system is built on balancing self interest against self interest to you know in, in the in the checks and balances. But I I think Jefferson is not just uh, saying what he thinks is popular. He's he's he is acting here kind of as a, a political philosopher and he believes Smith and those arguments and, and thinks that it would be the best course for America. That's a, that's a good point. And that hadn't really occurred to me. And I, I think you're right. And obviously in contemporary America, you don't get really get to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> kind of like speak your mind. All right, well, let's jump into the first inaugural address. I'd like to, sure. because um, he gives, he shares the, what he calls the essential principles of government, which could have been written by Russell Kirk almost <laughs> as a conservative principles. I'm going to read a few here. 
equal and exact justice to all men of whatever persuasion, religious or political, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Now, I mean, that's pretty loaded, entangling alliances, but support the state governments in all their rights, states' rights, jealous care of the right of election, absolute acquiescence in the decision of the majority, a well-disciplined militia, supremacy of the civil over the military authority, economy in the public expense. In other words, like, uh, don't go into debt. Honest payments of our debts and sacred preservation of the public faith, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of persons under the protection of habeas corpus, trial by juries, impartially selected. So it's a little bit different, but there's a lot of really conservative principles here that he just kind of like ticks through. Yeah, he describes a pretty a pretty good government right there. And he, uh, to be fair, he pretty much meant it. Um, I, I, he, re- he had a good presidency. A lot of people really, especially among the Federalists, thought that he was a radical and that he was really going to blow it all up. And he was more radical than the Federalists were. But he, he um, as, as he also said in this first inaugural, though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will is to be rightful and reasonable. That the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate them would be oppression. And I think he meant to live by that. I mean, he when he talks about free press, free religion, he he did not muzzle the press, and he did and he did not. Well, none of the founding fathers really did anything against any religion. He was uh, truly he truly believed in civil liberties and and carried them out. Um, his principles, as well as they could have been delivered in those days, I think he 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 did deliver them. I like this line too. Uh, error of opinion may be tolerated. Must be. He's basically saying people's stupid opinions must be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. And I mean, I think there's real application to the contemporary moment that we have today, like where we uh, language must be must must be hidden or canceled or blocked, you know. And he was, I'm sure, had, there were plenty of opinions that he didn't like. I mean, back then they would duel over these things, so it's mm-hmm. even more serious. And their media outlets, their press, was not sort of Walter Cronkite trying to supposedly play it down the middle. They all had a partisan bent, and they were really freaking nasty to each other. <laughs> yeah, they they were extremely nasty. I mean, if you ever, um, I read Ron Chandler's bi- biography of Hamilton recently, and the stuff that he wrote under a pen name and the stuff that was written about him was every bit as vicious as the nasty stuff you'll see on Twitter about people. And and that, that made it a weird era because like you said, they dueled. So people were being way out there, personal attacks and you might get shot for it. It was, it was a crazy time. Yeah. Yeah. And Hamilton did and died. Yeah. That he actually got canceled. I mean, it's way worse than getting your Twitter account canceled. So it it's it was a crazy time. But Jefferson did believe it. in um, one of the other letters we read from 1787. He talked about uh, in this letter to Edward Carrington. He, he says, the basis of our government's being the opinion of the people. The very first object should be to keep that right. And were it left to me to decide whether I should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate to prefer the, the latter. He really believed in that press, that press freedom, speech freedom. Again, re- repealing 
the Alien and Sedition Acts and, and cutting down on the sort of uh, oppression of the hostile press that the Federalists had engaged in under John Adams is, is a lasting legacy of Jefferson's that I think is underappreciated. He really believed in this and it, it, we have never approached that level of press censorship that was we were starting to get to in the 1790s. Yeah. The people are the only censors of their governors, and even their errors will tend to keep these to the true principles of their institution. To punish these errors too severely would be to suppress the only safeguard of the public liberty, which he basically goes on to say is free speech and newspapers, and every man should receive those papers and be capable of reading them. He said, I love this because, Mm -hmm. and and to me, it's also a, it's, it's actually a distillation really of, of what's important about free speech. It's it's not important to, to be able to, I guess, access pornography or something like that. What's important is have political speech so that, so that ideas can get out, get out there so that errors of opinion can be combated with reason. You know, um, Mm -hmm. errors can be pointed out. So we don't try to we don't try to hide opinions. We don't try to bury people or cancel their thoughts. Instead, we let it out. And uh, and you and I have talked about this in other podcasts. We need we need light as a disinfectant, and uh, to take these ideas up. And uh, today, there's uh, rumors and conspiracy theories, but and and it can travel so quickly today. I guess that's the difference. But I mean, do you do you think there weren't Conspiracy theories back in the 1700s and 1800s. I mean, rampant. Very few people could read, you know. So they're they're also talking about just folks hearing stories and stories being shared and the game of telephone through throughout a town and throughout a state and something like that. And and uh, I'm sure that there was very little accuracy in in what was shared. I mean, I guess today the difference is it, it moves so much more quickly, but it's always been the case that people tell lies. It's always been the case. That, that rumors are out there and, and conspiracy theories. And the way to combat it is not to hide it or bury it. The way to combat it, you know, as, as Jefferson says, I believe too, is to let reason, you know, just attack the ideas. On Absolutely. The and I, I think he gets at an important point too, is that we, because the basis of our government being the opinion of the people. So I, I think this comes down to is that free speech and free press are natural rights. You know, at, Everyone should possess them. No government should restrict them. But if, if the basis of our government was uh, to be ruled by an absolute monarch, and that guy chose to oppress free speech, it would be bad because it would be an infringement of rights, but it wouldn't harm the government itself because the government doesn't yeah. need free speech. It's just what that guy thinks. But in a democracy, in a republic, we have to have it. If we don't have it, this whole thing doesn't work. So it, it makes it... A, an even more important right, it, it still has the same moral importance as it would under any other system, but it has a practical importance that we that adds to it that we can't ignore. If you don't have people able to discuss the issues of the day, and it's like you said, that's the that's the core of of free speech, not not the other stuff. I mean, it's great to watch mo- movies and television, and you know, there's all these other weird things that people talk about. You know, the the political speech. If we oppress that. Uh, we don't have a functioning government anymore. Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, so it's uh, you can see why Jefferson was so insistent on this point. He and he he understood that, and I think we're seeing it today. If if we if we allow different voices to be silenced, 
even if we think they're crazy, we can't silence them. We have to argue them in public. We have to allow them to disagree and they have to allow us to disagree. And that's, that's how it works. Yeah. And I mean, this, this is cropping up on our side too. I mean, I think with critical race theory, for example, you and I have also been very critical of critical theory. I mm-hmm. think it's mostly, uh, mostly claptrap. And I don't think that it should be taught in elementary schools as fact, but I absolutely think that it should be discussed in college or whatever else. And it's, these are ideas that should be hidden. We should discuss them and, uh, and, and, uh, discount them, uh, through, through argumentation and logic and reason, you know? Yeah. The answer can't be just to bury it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, cause it's wrong. And also just cause that makes it more attractive to the contrarian minds, uh, that, that seek things out, you know, the government doesn't want us to know it. Why not? Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, don't, I, I think that goes back to, um, John Milton wrote about this, um, just about let, let truth and falsehood contend and truth will always come out the victor. I, I think it will. I, and I think that shows Jefferson's faith in the people that, yeah, some of them are going to get taken in by nonsense, but most people can, can tell good from bad. Most people can tell truth from a lie. And, the truth is going to win out. That's that's a big bet on popular government, but I I think it's going to win more times than not. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts. What do you get? Well, Jefferson is uh, just a, an interesting figure. A lot of what he writes is outside of modern conservatism, but he's definitely in the in the Lockean tradition. That seems like American conservatism is that fusion of Burke and Locke, who were kind of saying different things at the time, but we've made a synthesis of it. Jefferson is not a Burkean. Um, he was full in favor of the French Revolution in the way that, and you know, which, which horrified Burke. But in being sort of the American avatar of John Locke a hundred years later, he, he, he brings forward and distills a lot of those Enlightenment ideas and solidifies them in, in the American tradition and made them part of our American consciousness. So it's... I mean, to read, it, it is it is enjoyable to read the words of a, a president that are so so literate and thoughtful and well-reasoned and intelligent. Uh, it makes our modern politicians look bad by comparison, and it was, it was uh, well worth the read. Totally agree, and I think that it, some of the founders get discounted because we feel like we've heard it before, you know, and it just seems... So, so repetitive and oh the constitution but it's really cool to read it out of their own mouths sort of their own thoughts as they were as they were happening as they were occurring they were collecting the kind of the the wisdom of the ages and pulling it together and just think again two million people two and a half million people out of out of that crowd came these geniuses like like thomas jefferson who were able to pull together the the greatest thought in in the history of the world and uh, and combine it into uh, this just taking a shot at can we start a government on our on our own can you know can we create this thing uh, based on ideas based on ideals and it, it amazingly they did and it worked and uh, I think so many of those uh, original ideas I mean are what, still what we're we're fighting for today especially as conservatives so really cool stuff. All right, that's Thomas Jefferson. Catch us next time.